0: Hello everyone and welcome to The Stagey Place, a podcast where I, Elliot, get to chat with backstage creatives in the world of theatre. And in this episode, there is no exception as for the first time ever, I'm chatting about immersive theatre, a bit of the art form that I absolutely love but I've never had the chance to talk about on this podcast. And I'm delighted in this instance to be joined by Owen Kingston and Chris Stiles from Parabolic Theatre, who are currently doing their debut season at The Crypt, which is based in Bethnal Green in London. It's another fantastic episode where I actually got to speak with Owen and Chris in person, and got to see around the set of their current show. We had an absolute blast recording this episode, so much so that we actually recorded for about 55 minutes, so to condense that into a 30 minute episode has been difficult, but I hope you enjoy. Hello Owen and Chris and welcome to The stage Place. Firstly, I want to thank you both so much for having me, housing me in The Crit, which is your purpose space here for your season. It's really exciting to be here. I was given a tour uh, before this interview of your current show at the moment, which we'll go into in a minute. But how are you both doing today? Doing good yes
1: yeah. Yeah, very well thank you
0: <laughs> thank you so much for having me and obviously on your press night of your current production which is uh, a little bit mad but I'm really grateful to be here because I know that you must have a lot of stuff going on in your minds to uh, perfect the show before tonight's press night do you two just want to talk a little bit about your current show and what you've got coming up?
1: Sure. Uh, the show we've got running at the moment is Illicit Signals Bletchley, which is an immersive piece all about Bletchley Park during the Second World War. We've got a number of different historical figures who are all codebreakers, breakers um, and the idea is the audience will come along, they'll have a crack at Enigma, be able to get some war winning information and then also find out a bit more about these historical figures, what they did and why they were so important.
0: And this show is obviously a part of a wartime season and what's amazing is that where we are is actually a crypt underneath a church which is absolutely incredible for a wartime season and really feels like you know, you've hit the jackpot on this. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about finding this
2: space and how you've managed to create this season. Uh, we found the space via somebody who worked a bit with our company whose mother is the vicar of the church. So during the lockdown, there used to be a a pipe organ building company that stored like organ pipes and loads of wood and stuff down here in this space. And over the lockdown they went bust and so they had to move all their bits and pieces out and the company was liquidated and that happened around about the same time that we lost our old storage space in Croydon. We used to have an old gym which I had assumed we were going to be able to hang on to throughout the the lockdowns yeah. and the the pandemic, but uh, they they got uh, permission to demolish it halfway through, and so they they gave us two weeks notice. And they were like, we were there on a meanwhile use lease. So they gave us two weeks' notice said, you've got to get all your stuff out. We've got a lot of stuff. I mean, you've you've wandered around here, uh, and there's even more that's stored out the back. So uh, we needed to urgently find somewhere to move all of our kit to. Mm -hmm. And Beth had said, look, look, come and have a look at this this crypt in the church. Uh, This crypt was used as an air raid shelter, I believe, in both the First World War and the Second World War, I think. But it, it, it's got that vibe about it. The minute you come in, the arch ceilings, it feels almost like a, a tube station as well. as yeah. like a crypt of a church. And uh, yeah, it, it just seemed absolutely perfect. We, we, we put on a, a series of, of wartime-themed shows pre-pandemic in okay. our old home in the CoLab factory uh, in Southwark and um sadly that building's uh well the building's still there but we, we the color factory's gone now that yeah we, we needed a new place to 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 start making new work again yeah and uh yeah i think a lot of theatres post-pandemic have have gone back to the to sort of greatest hits things you know you've got like jerusalem playing in the west end there were things that are that were very successful pre-pandemic that are now being remounted because theatres had such a rocky time you want to guarantee as far as possible that you're yeah. gonna get good audiences. And we've taken that approach to some extent, haven't we? Absolutely. remounted remounting several shows that that were very successful previously for us. And then adding some new ones into the mix as well to try and uh, get uh, you know, restarted in making new work, uh, yeah. because we can't just always live off the, the greatest hits. No, absolutely yeah. not.
0: I'm really excited to talk more about the season later mm. in the episode. So, Owen and Chris, how did you first find each other <laughs> as artistic directors uh, of this space now? So, and yeah, how did you get to where you are now? I feel like this could
2: be a funny story. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite a bit older than a lot of the folk, folk who are involved with in Parabolic, I've been around, I'm 42. And uh, I first uh, met Chris uh, essentially doing youth theatre when he, when he was not a lad. Uh, yeah. um, and that's <laughs> the same for, for several people involved in the company, actually. I, I knew them first through kind of a youth theatre context. I used to do a lot of youth theatre mm. uh, back in the day. The interest in immersive theatre came about, it was around right about the time Chris was graduating. There's a few other people in the company who were in that similar kind of age bracket and uh, and I'd just seen Drowned Man yes. and I have known some people involved in Punch Drunk for years and years and years. I was at university with some of them. I'd always been kind of much more in the conventional theatre world. Yeah. Ran a small venue in Croydon for a while and produced as I said, a lot of youth theatre and also some of my own work and worked for various other companies. I was always too busy to go and see any of Punch Drunk's work. Yeah. And I don't know. Like I'm one of these people who, if somebody tells me about a film or a TV series and they're really enthused about it, really excited about it, it turns me off because okay. I sort of think it can't possibly be that good. Yeah. You know, the it's more the they get, yeah, the yeah, more yeah. they go on about it, the, the less interested I become. And of course, Punish Trump has been massively hyped, and rightly so, they're incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you know, like I so I had friends who were in the com- company all the while they were doing their early work all through the 2000s into the 2010s and uh, they would always say to me oh you need to come and see it and other people would say oh Punch Run incredible and I'd always had that kind of sense of it can't be that good surely and I was was always too busy I was always making my own work so um, a friend of mine who was in the show posted something on Facebook about it being like the best thing he'd ever done uh, the drown Man, this is I'm talking about. And uh, if you haven't seen it, like, why are we even friends on Facebook? No. <laughs> I read that post yeah. and I just felt really guilty. And I thought, oh, I have been meaning to see their work for years. Yeah. And uh, it does sound pretty good, this. Uh, it was life-changing. So that's where, where that started. Chris was around at the time. And, Kai, you were going to join the Army. <laughs> <laughs> I was. <really> <laughs> yeah. At that
1: point, there was, the trip was always going to be uh, that I'd be going to Sandhurst in six months. At the you time, I was, with, I was with the Army Reserves um and i've done a little bit of time uh, i spent six months working with them in cyprus yeah. um and then i came back and did a bit of theater work um, actually working this time for the 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 youth theater mm. uh, where i first met owen uh did a bit of work with them there and then um that was based up in York. Coming back down to London, and know I had a show going. on the a bartender.
2: Uh, so, uh, are you free? Start from the bottom. Start from the bottom. <laughs> work your way up. So that was that was literally
1: what it was. And It was morning Yeah, that you were it was doing. the first
2: show at Power. It's yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, over yeah. at the at the factory. Yeah. Uh, so I worked on the bar there. I got my first glimpse. At what immersive theater was because I never really heard or knew anything about it at that point, yeah, and then it was as we were doing the get out for that show in the yes. kind of factory, <laughs> the basement there, putting down all these drapes and sheets from what was a horror set into just what the bare brick walls of this basement was, and I remember turning to Owen and saying. This space feels like the cabinet war rooms. Mm. We could we could do something with this. <laughs> yeah, and I think in about two van loads of stuff going to a storage space and back. Yeah. we had come up with a very very brief idea of what a show would be, which then turned into the King Country. Yeah had a lot of changes since yeah. then it wasn't exactly we, we did it in two hours and we worked yeah. it out had a lot of tweets that needed but to go the, on the
2: bones of the show were there at that point you know, yeah there, there was a you could see the potential of, that, of, of a show that was interactive that put the audience uh, into the role of MPs yeah um, in the middle of all time whilst Britain was being invaded by the Nazis yeah so like an alternate history and just giving the audience the opportunity to to try and be the best versions of themselves. Yeah, that's a recurring theme. I think through a lot of parallax work is that idea that through the interactivity, through the scenarios that we set up, we allow the audience to step up and be the hero to a limited extent. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to what? How would I react if I was in this situation? Is a really interesting question to ask. You don't get to ask that in quite the same way in conventional theater you know, no. when you're watching something on a stage there is a distance between you and what's going on yeah. when you're involved in it in the moment and you are, you're put into put on the spot, as I said, uh, you know you, you what rises up within you is is the thing that I'm interested in yeah um, and, that's and
0: that's incredible something. as well like you know um I went to Burn City a couple of weeks mm-hmm. ago. Mm-hmm. Or, and punch Drunk and uh, it was only when they were just starting to do the one-to-one stuff oh, nice. uh, which was amazing I didn't get a one-to-one but I was watching a one-to-one yeah. take place in one of their little rooms I don't want to give too much away um, but yeah it was incredible and I'll definitely be going again because I realised that there was definitely a lot more that I have witnessed during that show (laughs) Um, but what you were saying earlier on as well about the fact that when you're doing a conventional theatre and you're just watching something and then you're up close and personal there is that empathy there is that emotional um, presence between someone i love immersive experiences And my first experience of one was something that I didn't realise was going to be an immersive experience because it was sold as a conventional theatre piece. Mm, So yeah, it was amazing. It it was called The Frozen Scream and it was on in Wales Menellium Centre. Uh, back in 2013, oh, I right. went for my 18th birthday. Yeah. So it was set in the studio, and you were watching what was playing out as a murder mystery type show, yeah. and some people were in this massive mansion house, and then so- suddenly someone's locked in a room, yeah. and the fire alarms got off, and suddenly everyone's had to vacate from the audience. <laughs> side of things but go through the set and then go backstage and you were suddenly backstage of the Wales Millennium Centre it was incredible that sounds brilliant brilliant. but the one caveat of knowing that it wasn't a real thing and obviously everybody knows that because everyone was still in character and stuff Mm. but the one caveat was that Lion King was playing on the main stage of the the Wales Millennium Centre and as you went round the dress circle there's obviously like screens of like what's Mm. going on on stage for like all the ushers in front of house and stuff Lion King is still playing, mm. whereas we're walking around the dress circle <laughs> and all that and then going backstage into like massive cafeterias to so clearly actual spaces that wears my mm. centre. And that performance, that production, has constantly stayed with me as one of the best pieces of theatre that I've ever seen mm. because it was set up as a conventional theatre and, and that's what you thought of watching. Yeah, and and suddenly flipped. Yeah, it's like that's the rug being pulled and suddenly it's amazing, and what sort of audience do you find that come to these immersive experiences? Because I find that I don't really have many friends who like immersive experiences, so I'm usually coming to these sorts of shows by myself. Mm. Is that something that you'd encourage? Solo theatre going?
1: Um, with immersive theatre, you absolutely can. Yeah. Particularly, I find when I went to see uh, the burnt city. Yeah. Uh, I went with uh, Zoe. And, and, and Owen was also there, this was on, on opening night. And we all kind of agreed, yes, we've come together, but as soon as the show starts, we're going Separate. off in different directions.
0: And they tell you to do that as well, don't they? Yeah. There's like the little boards in the museum where it's like, be silent and yeah. go away because then you'll come back together at the end. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So for that show, absolutely. And then for the sort of stuff that uh, we make here with Powerball at Theatre, we've had people come on their own. And because there is a a sense of you working together Mm. with the audience, you're all on the same side as the audience most of the time. Occasionally we've done shows where we've pitted audiences against each other, but even then you've got teammates. Yeah. So there's a sense of camaraderie. So you get to to meet new people. It's a great way to go into something being like, I've now, not only has the audience progressed in terms of a story, but also they've come together um, along the way. But then also on the flip side of that, if you come along with a group of friends... There is a sense of, okay, we're going to do this together. We're going to work on this together. And then you see how it comes across, particularly on like second or third viewers of these sorts of shows, yeah. where you can then build in a bit of backstory. Where you know what the general setting of the show is supposed to be. You can almost role-play yourself through and say, okay, I'm going to be this sort of a person, and together we all worked, and this together before we came to do this show. Yeah. So there's, there's a whole wide variety. But what I find most interesting with immersive theatre is you get the sort of audiences that would never come to conventional theatre. They would never darken the door of the National Theatre, for example. But immersive is something that is so wildly different that it's, uh, it, it attracts all sorts of people. Yeah. And that's that's brilliant. Um, yeah. It's a great way to be able to um, yeah see the sort of people who wouldn't see theatre but don't treat this as theatre. Yeah. So wildly different, you get really get your ticket value you as well, don't yeah, you? you, you you're absolutely, fully
0: into yeah, the get space, into the moment, yeah,
1: yeah. And some people will dress up as well, which is lovely. Mm. Yeah. Um, and when they sort of like they they realize it's okay, a World War Two. yeah, And then, okay, we're going to get our best hats and suits and ties or dresses or whatever they want to do, and they'll come along. Um, we had one person um, come to Kian Country <laughs> on a World War Two show. Um, dressed as a World War II nurse
0: mm. wow and then just <laughs>
1: played the whole show out as if they were a nurse, and at one point in the show, there's an actor who collapses um, after having been poisoned. Yeah. So, instantly, this nurse was straight <laughs> over there working out what they can do really to, to, to yeah. her patient.
2: I, I remember uh, uh, one of the King, King Country shows where every single member of the audience are dressed up, mm. wow. and uh, the, because they're supposed to be MPs, yeah. we have these sort of parliamentary style debates a few times in the show. And they were all using the right parliamentary language and referring to each other as my honourable friend. And it was just, it was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. The, the, that particular crowd had put in such a lot of effort themselves oh, wow. to enter into the world. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's beautiful when that happens. <laughs> and when you do these shows that are set around
0: a certain time period, how much of it is historically accurate?
2: Well, it depends on uh, whether or not we're playing with alternate history yeah. or not. But we take great pains to be as accurate as we possibly can in terms of setting, in terms of costuming. Uh, I know for, for King & Country, we, we, we've got several uniforms that were in King & Country, which were actual... They're not even reproductions. They were mm-hmm. actually worn during yeah. wartime. So we, we, we go to great lengths. I, I know when we first made forking Country King & Country, we sort of made a tick list... Of what you would expect to see Mm. in a sort of wartime themed show, you know what what other things and and all kinds of stuff on that list. You know, with sandbags, for example. You know, like we we wanted to make sure that it felt as authentic as possible. The furniture all felt right. Everything else. So yeah, in that sense, we go to great pains. And then in terms of the content, obviously. Where an alternate history is involved, we have to do a lot of world building to make sure that that alternate history hangs together and feels as authentic as possible. But when it's just straight up history, uh, getting as much knowledge into the heads of the actors as we can is is hugely valuable because we want them to be able to improvise in character I love hearing about people dressing up and really immersing
0: themselves in the shows when I went to go go and see Crooks 1926 I went to go and see it with a friend I actually brought a friend along to that one which is very good and we were the only two I think that weren't dressed up because we came straight from a rehearsal but then everybody else was dressed up and we were like (laughs) oh wow we really you really should have thought a little bit more about when we were going to book our tickets for this. It. But it was actually really magical because, like you say, for conventional theatre, people aren't going to dress up, I don't know, to see a Shakespeare with, like, robes and stuff <laughs> That's on. You know, they're all in their costumes. You know, Not costumes, they're all in their natural you yeah. know, clothes. But, yeah, when you go and see something that is immersive and you know that you're going to be fully immersed within that world... We haven't really different.
2: created anything that goes back further than the 20th century. Yeah. And partly for that reason... I think, you know, you can kind of get away with being in jeans and a T-shirt. It's not completely historically accurate for wartime, time, but you, yeah. it doesn't feel too terrible with the audience like that. But if you if you go back to sort of the Napoleonic era, mm-hmm. and you've got people in jeans and a T-shirt, that is going to feel weird. Yeah. Uh, um, I was interested to see, you know, when Secret Cinema did Bridgerton, how much effort people would go to to, to, to sort of fit the world in costuming. Mm. Because obviously, with Secret Cinema, that is a bit of a thing, people yeah. dress up for that. But I, I'd be fascinated to go back even further into history. We've talked about trying to do a, a show, say, in, uh, in Roman times. Yeah. Um, because I think, you know, throughout a good chunk of history, you've got quite elaborate clothes that people wore that it would be difficult for audience members unless you were to, us, we were to actually costume the audience members ourselves, it'd be yeah. difficult for the audience members to get there. But when you go when you, if you keep going back, when you go back far enough eventually you hit a point where where, where the customer becomes easy again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, Togas, it's and, t- t- Togas and sandals. Yeah. yeah.
0: So let's pause the timeline right here, right this second. So let's go from the foundations of Parabolic mm. to right up to now. And what I'd really love to know is, what's the biggest challenge that you've managed to conquer? Because I think there are probably a lot of younger immersive experience companies at the moment that are probably looking for a base maybe a permanent base to put all these shows in or they're fully starting out as scratch and they know that they want to start doing immersive theatre what advice would you have for them because you've managed to find a problem and then
2: conquer it and your biggest achievement from that first and biggest piece of advice if you can do anything else do that instead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's just <laughs> its, it's industry though, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> the whole industry. Yeah, but I think immersive theatre as a whole is hard. It's hard because it doesn't pay very well and it's hard because it requires a lot of you okay, no. in terms of your time and your energy and your intellectual capabilities. Immersive theatre is a particularly hard part of the overall yeah. theatre sphere and I say that as somebody who's worked across the whole industry yeah. big reason why it's particularly hard is that it's much more intellectually demanding I would say, than putting on a conventional play mm-hmm. um, because creating work that audiences can interact with particularly if, if you're taking the approach we have of adaptive narrative whereby the audience can change what is going on and have an impact on the, the course of the story and the how, how the story ends that that requires a lot from you so if you are going to do it be absolutely sure you can deliver on what you've promised and start small yeah. everyone you know if you go and see a punch drunk show with 600 audience you think i could do that then you are in that place of unconscious incompetence yeah. you know i don't know if you know for your listeners there, there were four stages of competence experts talk about unconscious incompetence where you think you could do anything and really you just don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Then you have conscious incompetence where, you're, where you're, um, you realise what you don't know and your confidence falls through the floor. And then you have unconscious competence, which is if you've kept working at it long enough... You've started to get good at what you can do. Yeah. But you maybe don't realise that you have got good at what you can do. And then you get to conscious competence where you're good at what you do and you know you're good at what you do. And I think a lot of young theatre makers, particularly when they start out in this industry, they are always in a place of unconscious incompetence and they don't realise it. Mm-hmm. You can knock yourself out of the industry very quickly by biting off more than you can chew, and then imploding, and then deciding that you can't do it, and then quitting. Yeah. Whereas actually, if you'd started smaller and you'd been a bit more realistic, you could stay in long enough yeah. to hit that place of conscious competence, but it takes time.
1: I had the great advantage of coming into theatre having not gone to drama school. Okay. So my learning curve of learning what immersive theatre was was from seeing bits of it and and working on it. Yeah, um, and I think particularly for immersive theatre, it does feel like it's such a completely different beast mm-hmm. to traditional theatre mm-hmm. that a lot of people have to unlearn what they learned. Yes. It's yeah. Interesting when it comes to the improvisational side of things, particularly because when we we're starting out when I was, starting, I was coming in i was thinking well it's it's improvisational, but it's also it's immersive theater we're trying to get absolute realism mm. so we're just playing things as realistically as possible mm. so as an actor that's simple i just need to create a character and i just play the character and then it's through going over a bit more you suddenly start realizing actually no it's not just creating a character and playing the character mm. it's creating a character playing that character reading the audience working out mm. what is it that the audience want to gain from this show how can I best give it to them, whilst making it feel like this was the audience's idea all along. And getting to that stage, working out how to almost manipulate your audience to do the things that they want to do, takes a bit of time and no audience members are alike, they've all got different things that they'll respond to. So working that out, that has been a big, big learning curve Um, and it's not really something that you can learn from a book either. You, you learn it from experience, but then also talk to other actors, learning from their experience, and going along it that sort of a way. And then also by making mistakes, by saying, I'll give this a go, see if that works. Oh, that didn't work. You just got to keep going and trying at it. Knowing that you've got a cast around you that will help you whenever you're struggling Yeah, yes. is an absolute must. And knowing yeah. that I've got complete confidence in everyone, that they've got my back, and I'm yeah. going to have their back as well. Yeah. And in terms of you're creating, most of for the first time you're creating a new company, when you're working out who you want to work with, work out people who you trust mm-hmm. implicitly and who are going to be as enthusiastic yeah. about what you're doing as you are as they are as well. Yeah. It's got to be the same level of enthusiasm and determination mm. to make it work. And if you get all those boxes right and if you've got the story that you really, really care about, that you want to tell... And the rest of the people working on the show also want to tell that story and they will put 110% into it, yeah. then you've got a really good fighting chance. It's about almost being patient and waiting for that perfect storm, mm, yeah. of everything being in the right place, the right people being there and not rushing into it. Mm. Not being like, I've got this idea and I want to do it now. Hold on to that idea because I'm sure it's a brilliant idea, but wait until the stars align. You've got yes. the right people, you know exactly what you're doing. And then take the leap of faith, yes. which will be the most terrifying thing you'll ever do. Yeah. And it always is. Every time I've put on Lister Signals Bletchley, the first time I did it, uh, I was terrified. Uh, the second time I did it, there was another point where like I'm terrified. This third time, I thought I was fine because I hadn't got terrified yet. And then there was this one night where I was terrified. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is this is that moment. Yeah, uh, It's weird, but eventually it's like the fear is a little bit comforting. It's like, oh, okay, I've got to that point where I'm terrified now that means that I care about this so much. Yes. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's a very important thing to get yes.
0: this Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Owen, Chris, thank you so much for coming on to talk about Parabolic Theatre, for having me here at the Crypt Theatre, for talking about your brand new season, your debut season <laughs> here at the Crypt. I'm really excited for what you've got coming up and it sounds amazing. We're nearing the end of the episode, but I do have one final question uh-huh. for you. And it is the title of this podcast. <laughs> and that is the stagey place. And what i love to know about all my guests is where their stagey place is. So this could be a physical theatre or, in your case, a physical space. It doesn't necessarily have to be a purpose-built theatre mm-hmm. at all, because we're talking about immersive theatre. This is the first episode that we've spoken about immersive theatre. Really, I find in this episode, I feel like <laughs> we're only scratching the surface of immersive theatre. Oh, there's so much more. There is say, so much yeah. more. I feel like I could do a whole series yeah. just talking about immersive theatre. Yeah. But for you guys, what I'd love to know is where your stagey place is. Cool. So, Chris, let's go with you first.
1: Okay. So, show that we've mentioned quite a few times. Uh, has been for King Country which is set in the cabinet auxiliary war rooms the backup war room which is given the radio call sign Charlie William 2 and I would say Charlie William 2 is my stagey place in terms of it <laughs> was the first immersive show where we created a space where the space felt like a character mm. yes and Charlie William 2 as a space and a character has now appeared in three different shows <laughs> and has been referenced in a further two. But it's where different characters that I've worked with have had emotional journeys. I've had that emotional journey with that. And then transporting Charlie William II from Southwark uh, in the old Colab factory to when we did it, we recreated bits of it in the Resistance Museum here in Bethnal Green. And getting out the old bits of props, setting up the desks as the way they were, recreating it, was like bringing a friend along and, and, and yeah. opening it up. Yeah, And we've now even got merchandise that is specific <laughs> really? to Charlie William yeah, 2. Yeah. We've got some mugs that are <laughs> designed to have like old styles of World War Two stamp on it. Of like, this is the Charlie William 2 mug. Um, <laughs> all the cast um, who have worked on for King Country have got one of those mugs and now we yeah. wants them to audience members. So everyone's got a bit of child audio too yeah. somewhere in the cupboard in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> and it's
2: interesting that, that is a that is not it's not just the basement of the color factory no. dressed as the set for the king country. That is a as a set, as you say, it's a character. It's, it lives in all our heads. Yeah. yeah um, so that's that's beautiful, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, for me uh, I like that and I I was going to say like the the Colour Factory basement as well has a special place in my heart because we created so many shows there and we may never get to go back ever again the the, the building will be demolished at some point it's going to be redeveloped so that's kind of sad but for me any time I go into a a, a disused building particularly basements I get a tingly feeling of I could make something here I go and view a lot of buildings we're looking for a building for a show at the moment Mm -hmm. so I I spend a lot of time looking at uh, buildings that have fallen into disuse, and there's something very special about that. I think I'm an urban explorer at heart. I should yeah. probably just sort of get a torch and a backpack and go out at night looking at places. But but I, yeah, I find that thrilling, and it, it sets my creative juices going. Yeah, you know, old, 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 old buildings, old basements, anywhere where we could make a show. Yeah, that's my staging place
0: amazing well there we go we've got to the end of the episode Owen and Chris thank you so much for coming on to the stage place. it's been again I've said it before an absolute joy to be here in person with you guys not over zoom there's no lags there's no delays real, it's real life yes, and yes. we're really talking here Great. now thank you both so much for coming on absolute thank pleasure you. Thank, thank you, thank you. <laughs> And there we go, that was Owen Kingston and Chris Stiles, the Artistic Director and Associate Director of Parabolic Theatre. I would love to thank Owen and Chris once again for taking time out to chat with myself, plus inviting me to their space for the interview, and hoped you enjoyed listening to our conversations, hopefully inspiring some of you to try out Immersive Theatre. If you would like to follow Parabolic Theatre on social media, you can do. On Twitter, it is underscore parabolic underscore, and on Instagram, you can follow them at parabolic theatre. So until another episode with myself, I hope you are keeping safe and staying stagey. Goodbye.